Good morning. It is good to be with you all in the house of the Lord. It's the end of what appears to be the end of the time of this great difficulty. This virus has come and we have been able to finally raise our voices together. For many of us have not been able to come to a church service for a while. It is so good to be here. I pray that I'm not alone in taking great pleasure in history, both the history of this place. Uh, I think everybody loves the history of their own life. The history of separate locations, uh, we're in the Northeast, so uh, it is one of the few advantages that we can give to fellow Christians from Texas that we have much more history to uh, point to around us, right? It's one of those things we do love and appreciate. I'd like to take a moment and point out the end from the beginning of what I'd like to uh, leave before you this morning, um, and that is that you need to pray for laborers in the harvest. You desperately need to pray for laborers. Our pastor, Andy White, uh, has a particularly strange uh, affinity for reading old minutes at church meetings from the 1700s and other times up in this area. And despite them having many ministers who worked in their churches, and you might read the scriptures and you'll see how often it refers to the elders as the elders in every church, they still were praying diligently for more ministers to work in the harvest. And I would implore you deeply to do so this morning. And that is not the end or the only thing. I guess it is the end, but it's not the only thing that I would like to um, present to you this morning out of John chapter 4. But it is the thing that I hope is your action as you leave this place. In John chapter 4, it says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to a parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So background is that Jesus had left a situation where Jesus himself had not baptized, but just as many uh, in the scriptures and other places are said to have done a thing that they had people do, it says that Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples did. You, you heard of many occasions, like say when uh, Moses, it says, was uh, nursed by Pharaoh's daughter. It was actually the nursemaid, ironically, Moses' own mother who did the job. That's just a matter of command, but that's not the most important thing in the passage. What matters here is that Jesus leaves one place because of contention. We don't always need to stop and fight. We can follow Jesus' example in this and go to the places where he would lead us to do his work and deliver his word. But here it says that Jesus was wearied. It says he was being wearied with his journey. We should remember this. We should remember this for a number of reasons, not least of which because there are those among us who are weary. Some are weary in the way, like Jesus was, and some are weary of their own tasks. Some are weary because of health difficulties and the caring for people around them. There are a great many reasons to be weary, but remember that your Lord and Savior, while it's so easy, especially now, to categorize things all in blank, black, and white areas, to say that this is this and that is that, that Jesus was God, so therefore everything he did was with the full power of the Godhead. That's not a perfect understanding of Jesus. There is many layers to what he did by making himself humbled to come down and be like us and to walk on this, in this world and eventually to be crucified on the cross. But he was here in this circumstance, wearied. And I pray that you bear that in mind as we consider what's about to happen. It says it's about the sixth hour. So he's weary, he's tired, it's in the dry, mid-eastern environment, and it is, well, it is noon. It is noon. And at noon today, when we uh, finish with the preaching portion of the service, 
You might like to go outside and just be reminded just how warm noon is and just how tired you could be if you'd been walking for a great period of time before that. Just get an idea as to what our Lord was going through. But where this is, is an interesting place. The city of Samaria called Sychar, which was also called Shechem. This particular location, as I said, I do love history, and I know I vexed some people's souls by going into it a little bit much in the scriptures, but you should know what happened here. You might say everything happened here. It starts way back in the beginning of Genesis. In Genesis 12, it says that Abraham passed through the land in the place of Sychem into the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land, and the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. This is the place where God had met Abraham and promised him certain most wonderful things. Particularly, this would be the place of his people, and that it would be set apart for him, even though at the time the Canaanite had been in the land. It goes on. This is where, in Genesis 33... It says that Jacob came to Shalem, the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, as he came from Padanaram and pitched his tent before the city. Now, where that happens, if you want to take the time to look it up, I can give anybody who would like it the, the times and dates here, but this is the day after the event of Jacob's ladder. This is the very place where Jacob rested after he met Esau, after wrestling with God all night and demanding a blessing. Walking away with a hip out of joint to prove that he had wrestled with God all night, and where he would eventually find peace with the man Esau, who one should say he should have had as his enemy. And indeed, you look at the passage and you wonder, why did Esau come with so many men if he only came at a time of peace? It sure appeared to be that God had answered his prayers that night. But that moment was pivotal in the history of Israel. But then, the very next chapter starts out with the terrible and tragic event of the rape of Dinah, his daughter. And indeed, it was even a man named Shechem who did it. And then the Israelites, his sons, the chiefs of the tribes, one would say, used their religion to destroy every one of them to the perpetual vexation of Jacob. All at this place. This is the place where Joseph went to go find his brothers. It says his brethren, speaking of Joseph, went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Joseph was sent out to find them there. They had moved on after that, and eventually they would catch, catch up with him and betray him and sell him off and fake his death again to his, their father's perpetual pain. But we should remember what is about to happen here and what land this is called. This is called Samaria. More things happened here, and I will save you some trouble, but it's where Joseph was buried. Land was given to him. It's where Joshua gave his final address to the people. But also... It's the place where, in Kings, after Solomon died, and God told him that the kingdom would be torn in two, two countries were made. One was called Israel, and one was called Judah. That country, Israel, eventually intermingled with the people around them, and were later called Samaria. They were considered less than, and maybe even worse than, the Gentiles, because they had known God and mixed other religions with the things of God. The Jews hated them, and even it said that they had no dealings with them. Well, that event happened in Kings chapter 12, where it says, And Rehoboam said, went unto Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. Now at this time and place, he was given a question. They said, your father, which is Solomon, had a heavy burden on us. And his father's counselor said, it's time for you to loosen the burden. Take it a, take it a little easier on the people. They're going to need it at this time. But his counselors of the next generation said, no, 
don't worry about that. You should put double their burden and make it so that we continue to increase and we make this country the wealthiest country in the history of the world. That last part I'm adding for context's sake, but that's what they had said to him. And he took those counselors and he made that very announcement here. To Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam and the third day as the king had appointed. And he came back and he made that announcement that he was not going to give any mercy. He was going to make it harder. And that was the very event that tore the kingdom in half. And that created Judah and Israel. Or later, you might say, here, Israel, Jerusalem, and the Samaritans. Which is the backdrop of this particular event. You could hardly look around this neighborhood and see all the full history. All the joys, the promises of God, and the terrible, terrible sadness of the events that happened throughout the course of the history of this people. I know in our individual lives, sometimes we feel that way everywhere we walk. That everywhere we look, we see the things that have happened for good and for evil. But at this moment, it's not time to think about ourselves. Let us consider the the acts and the things that were both said and done by our dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says, Then cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And indeed, this was true. I know we are going through something of a time of division. There is so many subjects and matters that we are, find more difficult to talk about in public spaces because there is separation. That is the natural way of all mankind were God not to intervene. We should not be surprised, but we should certainly mourn. But here at this time, they had a division which was much greater. They wouldn't even deal with each other, the people of Samaria. As a matter of fact, one, I think, should be rightly convinced that Jesus was later called a Samaritan as an accusation. Art thou not a devil? Hast thou not a devil? Art thou not a Samaritan? Because of this specific event. And yet, God moves in mysterious ways. And his ways are past our finding out. They are so much higher than ours that your imagination would cease to, um, would just give up at the attempt. But God says that he is so much more above us than you are above a worm. So I'll give you a bit of an understanding of just how much better his ways are. But sometimes it is confusing. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Why would he mark himself here? And indeed, the time frame here is in the beginning of his ministry. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll see that at the beginning of this, it talks about the time frame. It, it always gives a time. It says that at different times that he had uh, left two days or a number of weeks or some other thing like that before that. So it gives you a history and it gives you a uh, short time from the beginning of his ministry till now. So Jesus here is taking off right when things had just begun. And so he steps into Samaria out of Jerusalem and he says, he says unto her, he says, if now thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldst, wouldst have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. Now this is a strange thing for a number of reasons, but she was just confused as to why he would be talking to her in this place. Now she's alone, and she's there at the most uncomfortable time of the day, so she must also have her own difficulties and reasons for why this would have been a problem. But here he says something quite mysterious. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink. Now, if you are familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that the beginning of this introduces him as, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And here this woman, once again, comprehends not 
as Jesus said. He said, if you knew who you were speaking with. But it gets worse than that. It says that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. So should we be surprised when even this Samaritan, which had been cast out, should not know? We should not. But there's more. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But the woman seems to miss it. She says, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence hast thou this, that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well and drank thereof, and his children and his cattle? So again, she's referring to history and that great man, Jacob. And Jesus answered and said, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now these are strange and mysterious sayings to give to someone who is outside the people of Israel. As a matter of fact, Jesus would later tell his disciples not to go to the Samaritans. He would say only to go to the people of Israel for a time. So why was he here speaking with this woman, giving such deep and mysterious sayings? The most important things, one should say, in life. For indeed, if you have ever had a short time without water, or if your body couldn't take water, you know how vital it is. But Jesus says all the vitality of water, and we are at a time when, when um, the type of food we eat becomes of such high priority. We have access to all the food of the world. I was just remarking the other day how my son said he loves pineapples. And I thought to myself, that's amazing how great a time we live in that you can love pineapples living in New Jersey. Right? We really do have it good, don't we? But Jesus makes it clear, as he says in another place, that it's not what goes into a man, but what comes out of him. But here he reveals that that, that water that he gives to this woman that he offers that woman is something much greater and something much more mysterious. And here she says unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Again, she still doesn't quite understand that what he's talking about isn't necessarily physical. It's not something less than that. It's not that. It's something much more, much greater. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. And as we were talking about last night and again this morning at different places over this weekend, how when God begins to deal with us, to give us this water, to give us these best things, the best thing, life, life, everlasting, eternal life, which is a thing that we can sometimes take to words and because of use, they can become dull in our hearing. But life, beloved, everlasting life, we can forget that Jesus will deal first with the things that cause death. He says, go, call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that thou sayest thou truly. This would be less surprising now than it may have been then. It would still be very sad. It would still be very wrong. It would still be an affront against God's very creation. Remember that marriage is something God set up to point to Christ and the church. Is there anything less important, less vital for us to protect? less vital for us to teach and educate, for the elders to teach the youngers about what they're going into and what to be prepared for. The youngers should be humble enough to consistently seek advice and education from those of their elders. But you don't get into a situation where you're living with someone in this time after five separate marriages that failed without having other issues. We have a great many other issues nowadays. And so we can relate to some degree. But here Jesus put his finger right on the pulse of her sin. You hear later where she says, Come see a man which told me all that ever I did for all of her life, had changed from this particular sin. Everything. 
had been affected by. And Jesus, indeed, Jesus put his finger exactly on the point that mattered, exactly on the point, as a surgeon would, as he begins to do his work to remove the cancer, to take out the thing that has trouble. But I would contend that this was not the first time that Jesus was working in her heart. Indeed, her answers imply something else. And Jesus will reveal this at the very end here. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. And this, this is, again, a matter which was of debate at their time. And Jesus will clarify it, but it is important to wonder about worship. For indeed, beloved, I would contend that worship is the final end of our salvation. Was it not said that if the people didn't cry out and praise to Jesus as he came into Jerusalem, that the rocks and trees themselves would cry out? And we might think this is a matter of wonder, a thing that is, is glorious to see. But it's the opposite. For those rocks and trees would cry out, condemning the men who do not praise God rightly. For in heaven, I would contend that we will be praising constantly and never, ever run out of ways and new things we love to praise him for. As a, as a new husband might write poetry for his wife, so likewise we will be filled with affection for our beloved because we will continue to know him as he is. It is only our sin that stifles our worship. And here, this desire for worship is right. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Indeed, clarifying that it was a strange thing. He came out of time, out of place, to see these people in Samaria. It reminds one of when Mary was telling Jesus, told, told the people to obey Jesus when he was going to eventually make the water wine. He says, my time has not yet come. And yet we should be glad that Jesus has continued to be merciful. But the end of that event, if you read the passage, was not most that the wine was made out of water, that the wedding was you know, after a fashion saved. It was that people believed. As you go through the events that have happened before this, in John, every event that matters finishes with someone believing on Jesus' name. And so you see his purpose and his work. And he says, The hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is the spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now I would say at least one of those, you have no power to make a benefit. To have your spirit changed is the work of God. Jesus will clarify this later in John 6, but it's clarified before this also. You're kind of sandwiched between a number of passages that make it quite clear. For as we're reading, it says, He came to his own, his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name, which were born. And if we leave it there, you might be carried into every form of false doctrine. But it says, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if there are those that believe, if there are those who begin to understand, we have only one hope for the source. We should not waste our time convincing people that they are God, that they have the power of God. Remember, that was the temptation from the garden. The enemy promised that you could have the power of God. You could be like God. That false doctrine is as false as the very things the enemy whispered into the ears of our father and mother. But the chief goal and end of God's work here in making people believe and in giving them life as he offered is that we might worship him in spirit and in truth. And for lack of time, I'm not going to get too much into that. But it says, The woman said unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Who told her that? Who told her that? Well, you know, as I said, that the end is that we should be praying for workers in the vineyard. Jesus would say later, I sent you to reap that whereupon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored. Someone was preaching in Samaria. 
God can reveal all things, if he wants to, into your mind directly. But he elects to deal through the foolishness of preaching, through the continued teaching of God's word in the world. I don't know why he chose to do that. It is a mystery to me. But we should be glad that he is elected to continue to do that to this very day. Someone was preaching in Samaria, and here Jesus will reap the harvest. And that's the thing the disciples would at first miss, but hopefully come to grips with. And she says, again, when he has come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Now this is one of many passages in scripture where Jesus reveals that he has the power to reveal all things. That he is, in fact, God and the Son of God. What a great comfort and what a great truth. And what an amazing thing that the only person who was to hear it was this wicked sinner from Samaria that couldn't even go out at the communal times and all the rest of the women were going out. This lonely lady in the heat of the day would receive this. And I have to tell you, this conversation happens and there's nothing that says that Jesus ended up getting water. Right? He asked for water, they got caught up in a conversation. He might even be more weary. Now, have you seen that if you're a pastor? Have you seen that of those that labor in the word? We need, beloved, more doing this work. It is wearisome work, it is necessary work, it is joyful work beyond measure. But you are called to pray for this particular thing. And it says, And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot. And again, I I don't know if he got any access to this water pot. I hope he did. But it says that she left her water pot and went her way into the city. And this is an interesting thing, because God could have called her out to go a whole separate way. But you'll see this pattern in the gospel, that she ended up going back on the same way she was on, her way, but it was now changed. For she was now going doing God's work. She wasn't going doing the work she was doing before. She actually left the work behind, the water pot. And here she went now to just go tell everyone what she had just heard. I that speak to thee am he. And she tells, she, and she said unto the man, Come see a man which told me all things which ever I did. Is this not the Christ? And again, somebody had been teaching to watch for that. Because these words, they then would understand and believe. Someone had been laboring behind the scenes. Some, someone who was never here to be recognized. And indeed, the work isn't for the purpose of recognition. We aren't going to pray for people who might come and be great orators and do wonderful work that all the world might recognize that we, primitive Baptists of Maryland and New Jersey and Pennsylvania, might be recognized as the smartest people on earth. Our job, beloved, is to pray for people to work, to work for our souls, who watch for your souls. Then they went out of the city and came unto him. And again, I would, I would contend that somebody was working and also somebody was working because she, they believed upon hearing her testimony. And who could have convinced them to believe that this was indeed the Son of God? But again, they could not see unless they were born. Remember the passage in John 3? I believe I was here speaking about that just a couple months ago. It talked about how you could not see the kingdom of God unless you were born, using the same verbiage. But which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Those two seem like they're the same. The Bible is very clearly noting out all the ways that we have no power to be born again of ourselves. But it is a thing which God gives. It is that great gift, which is, on one hand, a great relief, and on the other, a great joy. Those two things often come together. But we should be relieved, for that we can neither for ourselves nor for others be responsible for our own salvation. You are not responsible for the raising of the dead. There is one who has shown he has the power to do that, whose job it is. And let us take comfort. That does not mean we don't petition him as often as we might. 
But indeed, they believed. And meanwhile, back at the well, in the meantime, while his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, and this is the secret, beloved, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Sometimes as we walk weary in this world, it's partly because we don't understand which, how to properly fill our batteries. Remember what it says all through Scripture, that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount upon wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow faint. Can you imagine that? Just before that, it says that even the young men shall fail. The Olympics are about to start. You're going to see the fastest, strongest runners in all the world. And all of them, their strength will run out. But what was being uh, illustrated before that passage that you're very familiar with is that God's strength cannot fail. He is always stronger than you can imagine. Always. But Jesus here reveals in his arrival and weariness, but he is somehow being filled by something that you have access through a very specific way by serving his people. Indeed, you can see this evidence in all the economy of the world. All money that's made comes from some of those who are made in the image of God serving other people made in the image of God. I can contend that everywhere, every time anything has ever been made, anytime anyone ever gained, it's that. And that is a picture, a cheap, low picture of the heavenly riches. Right? That all things around us are built after the same pattern. And that is this, that when we serve him, when we obey him, he fills us with food that is everlasting. Here he shows it's not just water, but it's also meat. He says, therefore, said the disciples one to another, hath any man brought him aught to eat? And it's very easy to be hard on the disciples here. But, you know, as you might desire to, we're going to have a meal afterward, desire to fill the people around you with food. It is right that they desired that their master would have had food. But they didn't understand. And here Jesus begins to unfold it to them. He says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Beloved, there is a finish. Sometimes it feels like our sanctification. Sometimes it looks, we look around at the world and we say, this is just never going to end. It's always going to get worse with deceivers deceiving each other more and more. And, and the lies are going to grow bigger and stronger. And now we're all connected and it just seems like it's all falling apart. His work shall be finished, beloved. And that he, for some strange reason, has elected to involve us. I don't know why, I don't know how, but here he shows us exactly how that is. Because he says this to encourage his disciples to take part. We cannot make people believe. That's the one thing that is out of our purview. But we do get to bear witness of his great name. We get to bear witness of who Jesus is and what he has done and what his word says and how he works in the world. And in so doing, we get to take part in the great work of all creation. There is no fantasy story, no um, imagining of men that has ever come close to what part we get to play just when we either preach or support the spreading of God's word in whatever way we might. It is the single most effective thing in our world today. But it is a matter of foolishness because God has decided by the foolishness of God to upend all the wisdom of man. And here it continues to this very day. And so he says, Say not ye, there are four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look to the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. That would be just a saying. You plant something and four months later it comes. But at this very moment, remember, we said meanwhile back at the well, the people were coming out of the city. And they were approaching the well. If you've ever seen a group of people walking or a field of wheat, there are certain similarities in the movements. And Jesus was revealing to them that every field of harvest was to reveal unto us, even this very moment, that it is the people that matter. That God cares very much for the people. And that we should be concentrated first on that. It says that he that reapeth receiveth wages, which is a strange thing. It is a strange thing to consider that those who go and work in a field that they don't own, 
that they never had anything to do with planting. We're going to see that when the harvest comes in a few months. There are people who flock to different areas for the purpose of being paid just to reap it. They had nothing to do with the ownership, the work. They didn't plant it. They didn't keep the pests out. They didn't keep other people out. They didn't keep thieves out. And yet, they get to take part in the profits of those who took on all the risks. So likewise, those who get to preach the word and those who support the word. That we get to take part in these things that we had nothing to do with. We had no part to play in God's death on the cross. We had no part to play in his plan from the beginning of the world. We had no part to play in God's work in your individual hearts. But we get to arrive on the scene and speak the word and take part in those most joyous and glorious heavenly riches. It says, and herein, I'm sorry, here it says, that he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. What a wonderful and a hopeful blessing. It says, and herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon, whereon, whereon ye bestowed no labor, and other men labored, and you entered into their labors. And again, we see how that exact thing is happening here with the people of Samaria, how that Jesus comes and speaks to this woman who already knows of the Christ, who knows what things he will do. We don't know who, when we're talking with someone, what their past experience is. What we know is that our job is to bear witness of the truth and leave it to God to connect the differences. And I would implore you to beg God to continue to send those who will work in his harvest here in this place. Thank you for your good attention. Hymn number 597, I'll read a few, uh, a portion of the verses on there. I pray this will be a blessing to, to somebody here. Now in thy praise, eternal King, be all my thoughts employed, while of this precious truth I sing, cast down, but not destroyed. Second verse. Oft the united powers of hell, my soul have sore annoyed, and yet I live this truth to tell, cast down, but not destroyed. Third verse. In all the paths through which I passed, what mercies I've enjoyed, and this shall be my song at last, cast down, but not destroyed. Verse 4, when I with God in heaven appear, there shall I him adore. Destroyed shall be my sin and fear, and I cast down no more. Anybody ever experience being cast down? Maybe there's somebody here that this will help a little bit. You can go to the, the heading of the song and it tells us where the reference is in the scriptures to the verse that it's referring to. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter and we'll read down through this chapter. The Apostle Paul, as he is inspired of God to write these verses, he writes them for the benefit of the Corinthian folks to help encourage them. They were some folks, a group of folks that were Discouraged in many ways, many different areas. But he's giving them some hope in the middle of discouragement. It's one thing to go through seasons of despair and discouragement. 
and not have anything to hold on to. It's one thing to be bombarded with the challenges of Satan and know not where to look unto. But it's another thing to experience these challenges and fiery darts that Satan sends our way and then to know that we do have something that holds us up and keeps us going. And so Paul starts out right here and he says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, and certainly this could be referred to what Brother um, John was referring to us, the ministry, but all of us have a ministry. Paul said, I'm going to tell you what keeps me from quitting. I'm going to tell you what keeps me from, he refers to it as feigning, from we might say as pitching in the towel. Now, Brother Corbin, your dad is most of the time encouraging to me, but sometimes not. And yesterday we were on the way to the airport and uh, on the way we were talking and I said, you know, when I first started driving, I had a car that it had a parking brake in the middle. There was a lever in the middle. And uh, some of you may have a car like that. And I said, and if you accidentally or, or you pull on the brake just a little bit right there, and you know that the brake is having some effect, you have to give it just a little bit more gas. And I said, that's kind of how I feel some days. And when I look back, I don't know if it's because of the experience we had with COVID. I don't know if it's the experience I had with my father and his, his illness. I don't know if it's the experience I had with my sister. I, I don't know if it's the challenges we've had at church through, uh, through the challenges with COVID. But I said, I just sometimes feel like that I have to push the gas pedal just a little bit harder to, to be able to, to, to make it and to get along. And he turned to me and he said, could it be possible that it's A-G-E? I didn't even think about that. But Paul is saying right here, he says, no matter what all the challenges are, he says, there's something that keeps us going. And he said, I'm going to tell you something that will encourage you in the midst of all of this. He said, as we've received this ministry, we have mercy. The songwriter in verse 3 referred to mercy. But Paul says, the reason that, and he, he, he mentioned several reasons right here, but he says, one of the reasons that we faint not is that we've experienced the mercy of God. God has been so good to us. God has continued to shower His mercy upon us. Every single one of us have experienced the mercies of God far above what we deserve. If we never experienced another mercy of God, we've already received far more than what we deserve. So we can look back upon our life and we can see that God has had mercy upon us. You're here right now because you are an evidence that God's had mercy upon you. And Paul says that kind of helps me keep on keeping on knowing that I have a merciful God who cares for me, who loves me, who sustains me, who forgives me, who helps me all along the way. And he says, I know I have a merciful God. Therefore, it encourages me to keep on keeping on. Now, 
Paul says it's important. He says we've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Verse 3, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Not everybody is going to embrace and receive the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And Paul right here gives you a category, a group of individuals that definitely will not receive it until God has touched their heart, until he's tendered their heart, until he's given them a desire and an appetite for the things of God. He says, but if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world, talking about Satan himself, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Paul says, but we preach not. Paul says, for we preach not ourselves. That'd be really boring. That'd be really discouraging if we preached ourselves. He says, but we preach not ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus, our Lord, and ourselves are your servants for Jesus sake. You know who we're accountable to? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You know who the paymaster is? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He says right here. He says, for we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we are servants unto Jesus Christ. And then he tells us right here. And this is something that is so very important. This is what keeps you going. This is what helps you. This is what sustains you. He says, for God. Who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. This is huge. Who is it that spoke creation into existence? You can go all the way back. You can travel all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And you can see that in the beginning, God. This is all about God. It's not about us. We're the beneficiaries of it, but it's all about God. In fact, it's all about what God does for us and for all of his creation. He says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on down to say that God himself spoke light into existence. So when he, when, he, when he talks about the rest of this verse right here, he gives us this, this tremendous comparison that it's God that created the heavens and the earth and that it is God that spoke light into existence. Now, we all believe that. We all recognize it. When I see the sun over here, I love to see the sun come up in the morning. I love to see the sun set. I like to see it come up a little bit more than I like to see it set. But that's just my personal preference. I love to see the sun come up. And it just reminds me about the power of Almighty God. I know that it's God that's in charge of that sun. God is the one that put it in place and God sustains it. But did you know that he also uses that comparison to that wonderful work that God has done in your life? The God that created all the universe 
that spoke it into existence, that spoke light into existence. He says the God that did all of that, He condescends down to our situation and He speaks into our hearts. Now, should we ever imagine whether or not God might be effective about that? I mean, you're talking about the creator of the universe. You're talking about the one that holds it all in its place. Should we ever doubt but what God can speak the life-giving voice? And by the way, in this work, God doesn't need my help. And He really doesn't need your help. God does it, and He does it effectively and wholly and 100% by His power. And by the way, it's not a hard thing for God to do. And by the way, somebody's not going to wander far enough away from God that He can't find them. He's the God of the universe. Look Look who we're experiencing this from. Look what He says. For God... Who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts. Now I tell you what, that helps you keep going. He says, for God hath shined in our hearts. And then he says to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You rejoice in the message of Jesus Christ. It's because God chose you to put His Spirit in you. He describes it this way. He hath shined in our hearts. Now you can look at the example of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. And Paul was going away from God when God reached him and apprehended him and shined his light in Paul's heart. And that's generally the case. We go away from God and God reaches us and shines his light in our heart and he quickens us and he gives us spiritual life. And look what he says. For God, I, I, wish, I, I wish I had the words, I wish I had the mannerisms to to get this across in such a way that, that, would, that, 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 that it would be a blessing to you. He says, For God, who, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's not a small thing. It's a big thing. And then look what he says right here. But we have this treasure. Anybody have any treasures? I have a couple of that, uh, 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 that are treasures to me. I have my great-grandfather's first clock. And, 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 and that's, that's real special to me. If my house was on fire, that's the, one of the first things I'd grab. The second thing I'd grab was my great-grandfather's first Bible. Big Bible, he wrote in it, has the names of his descendants. And those would be two things that are that are treasures to me. Most of the rest of stuff, it'd be all right for it to go. But I'd like to be able to take those two things with me. He says, you have a treasure. And you didn't do anything to get it. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to put it there. 
but it's a gift from God. Now, he says we have this earthen vessel. That's this, this natural body. And we'd like to patch it up, fix it up, dress it up, make it last longer. But, but it's inevitable that this tabernacle, that not a really good outcome here in this life for it. But there is something good about it that God brings forth. And it's toward the latter part of the chapter. He says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So this treasure is the Spirit of God, the spiritual life that God gives in these earthen vessels. That's this body. Did you know that if for no other reason... We ought to care for this tabernacle that God's given us. We ought to. If for no other reason, if for no other reason we should be mindful and care for this tabernacle that God's given us, because it houses the Spirit of Almighty God. There's a whole lot of reasons that we ought to care for this tabernacle that God's given us. But one of the main reasons that we ought to care for it. You know, I I remember Brother Frank Rogers that was here. Fine old brother. Lived to be up in his early 80s. There's probably a few folks that still remember Brother Frank Rogers. He pulled an oxygen machine around with him. Or a tank. Everywhere he went. I remember he told me. He said, Brother Stephen. If I'd have known that I was going to live this long. I'd have taken a lot better care of myself. Well, you just might live to old age. And you ought to consider the tabernacle that God's given you and how you care for that tabernacle. The main reason we ought to care for it is that it houses, it's the abiding place for the Spirit of Almighty God. That ought to motivate us to care for this tabernacle. Here's where he addresses it. This whole chapter is really good. I hope you'll go home and read it. Chapter 4, real good. The latter part is great as well. We're troubled on every side. Have you ever heard somebody say that troubles come in threes? And then you might give the account and testimony that troubles don't seem to come in threes. They come in sixes or sevens. One thing bad happens and then it seems like another thing happens. And one thing after another. He says right here, he says we're troubled on every side. Well, do we just quit? Do we just pitch in the towel? He says we're troubled on every side. But he says somehow, Paul says, even though there's trouble all all around, even though there's trouble in every area of my life, he says somehow we're not distressed. We're not overcome with the trouble. He says, we're perplexed. Anybody ever get perplexed? You consider what we've just been through as a country, as a nation. Regulations. All the different things that have come about. All the uncertainties. There's a whole lot of times that we could end up being perplexed. Parents, you ever get perplexed 
You ever, you ever wonder if this is the right thing, the right way? You ever face situations that you're just totally, completely perplexed about? Paul says we're perplexed, but he said the good news is we're not forsaken. Then he says, and this is where the songwriter got it. He said we're cast down. I guarantee you that one of Satan's tactics is discouragement. And Satan delights to cast down you and I. And usually he'll throw a fiery dart of temptation in something that really allows us to experience great despair. He says we're cast down, but he says we're not destroyed. So it's one thing to be cast down, but it's another thing to be cast down and know a few things. It's one thing to be cast down, but when you can know that God is for you, when you can know that God is sovereign, when you can know that God knows your problem, your situation, your trial better than you do, when you can know that God is for you and that God will help you, when you can know that you have a friend that's referred to as closer than a brother, and that is your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you know that you've got not just a good friend, you've got not just a best friend, but you have the Lord Jesus Christ that you can go to all the time. And so when you're cast down, it's really good to know that He's there for you. It's also good to know that when you're cast down, you may think in your mind that you're in the bottom of the valley and that you're in the bottom of the pit and that you may be, as it's referred to in the scriptures, as deep mire. Now, that just sounds pretty bad. And you may feel that that's where you are. And you may feel that nobody else has ever been there where you are and nobody can relate to you. But did you know that no matter how low that you are and how low that you go, that you're in the hands of Almighty God. And you can't go any lower than that. And all those other things that you might be built upon, maybe have been taken away. And you're in the loving hands of a merciful Heavenly Father. And you can't fall any further than that. You can't. And God is there to hold you up. And by the way, I don't believe those are hands of judgment. But I believe they're hands of mercy. The songwriter starts out and says, I've experienced a whole lot of the mercies of Almighty God. So when I fall, I'm just getting closer to His hands. Therefore, you may be cast down. But you're in the hands of Almighty God. And you will not be destroyed. It's going down. This is really good and we're out of time. But I just want to hit a couple of verses toward the end. It's, it's really, really good here. Paul says again in verse 16. 
He says, for verse 15, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. Did you ever think about it, that probably sometimes when we go through what we go through, it's for the glory of God? Because when we go through these trials, and then when God delivers us, or sustains us, or helps us, or holds us up, we look back and we say, it's only by God's mercy that I've been able to endure it. Paul says it's for the glory of God. You know what? We can go through a lot more when we know that it's going to be for the glory of God. We can. Now look what he says. For, he says it again, for which cause we faint not. I had a pastor that loved him dearly. He, he went through so many seasons of discouragement that about every three months he would write his letter of resignation. He would. But he never mailed it. God continued to sustain him and hold him up and bless him. And that's what God does us, does with us. Here's what he says. Paul says again, for this cause we faint not. Though our outward man perish. We, we can experience that ourselves. We can look around. We can see that that happens. But he says, though our outward man perish, yet the inward man, that's that spiritual man on the inside. That's what's in the heart. That's that work that he refers to in chapter 6 where he shined in our hearts we have this treasure he refers to it as a treasure he says this inward man that's the treasure that's on the inside he says it's renewed day by day I have witnessed this many times you have as well I've witnessed this many times where you might be visiting with someone that's nearing the end of their life and and their mind has gotten cloudy or their mind is not clear. And you start talking about the Lord. You start singing hymns of praise. And that old mind that is so weary, all of a sudden it's like the spiritual man on the inside takes over and begins to respond and manifest itself. And they'll start singing hymns and they'll start praising God. Even though their body is, is failing and they're nearing the end of their journey. And that's a fulfillment of this verse right here. Though the outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Now, Paul puts this in perspective. He says, for our light affliction. Hmm. How can Paul categorize what I'm going through right now as being a light affliction? Paul just probably doesn't understand what I'm dealing with. How could what I'm going through with right now be considered a light affliction? Well, one way to look at it is what Paul brings to our attention right here. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now, I don't understand eternity in general I understand the years that God gives us but even if we look at the affliction that we're experiencing right now and we compare it to our whole life it's but a light affliction 
But then if we factor in, he says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. But then if you factor this in, you take this little window of time that we're in right now. And we look at the affliction that we have. He says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. You take that and you compare that to eternity. Wow, it's pretty small. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And then this helps us as well. There's three things in this chapter that help us keep from being cast down and not fainting and not being destroyed. He mentions one more here. We've already recognized that Paul brings our attention to the mercies of God. Uh, we, we've recognized that he reminds us of the spirit that we have on the inside of us that holds us up. And then he tells us that one more thing that will help us. He says, while we look not at the things which are seen, that's everything around us. We spend all of our time consumed with what's going on at this level or this level. Paul says, we're not to look on the things that are temporal, that are here today and they're gone tomorrow. He says, we're not to look on the things which are seen, but we're to look. And Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, we're not only to look, but we're to think on the things which are above. He says, the things that are seen are temporal. But he says, the things that are not seen are eternal. It will encourage you to know that you have a merciful God and that his mercy is abundant for you. It will encourage you to know that you have the Spirit of God dwelling in your heart and that these afflictions are but for a short season. And in light of eternity, Paul says they're but light afflictions. And it will greatly encourage you in the midst of your challenges if you can think not on the things of this world, but think on things above. That'll help you a whole lot in avoiding being totally dis destroyed, being totally overcome, and be ready to pitch in the towel. You may be cast down, but you're not destroyed by God's grace.